Tonight, I was digging through a scrapbook from 1997 when I was a 25-year-old up-and-coming Sports Illustrated scrub. And it includes a bunch of my clips, some photographs, and also a note dated September 2nd, 1997 on Sports Illustrated letterhead belonging to Ivan Mizell, a senior writer I didn't know personally at the time. And Ivan wrote via pen, Dear Jeff, congrats on the promotion, well-deserved from what I've seen. And there's no way Ivan remembers writing that. No possible way. But I saved it because it meant so much to me. And I just want to say, in this age of tweets and DMs, sending someone a handwritten letter every so often makes a difference. A warm note, a congratulatory word, just a, I see you. Because while all the digital stuff vanishes, pen and paper last. And maybe, just maybe, 24 years from now, your recipient would dig through an old scrapbook and remember. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Joe Posnanski, the longtime sports writer and author of a terrific new book, The Baseball 100, that drops today. This is episode number 227. Let's sing some yay. All right, Joe, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. So I have, I have in front of me your last two books, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini, and then a 17-pound book called The Baseball 100 <laughs> about your rankings of the 100 greatest baseball players of all time with you know sort of detailed breakdown. When I'm trying to pick book subjects myself, I'm always like, okay, I need something I'm going to love. I also need something that's going to sell and, you know, blah, 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 and what's going to be marketable. So my, my topics have always been sort of bigger topics, Bo Jackson and Walter Payton. And I was thinking like Harry Houdini, 700-pound <laughs> book about your rankings of the – and they're both really freaking great books. Thank you. I wonder like when you, when you are thinking topic, this is what I want to do for my next book, do you think – sales at all? Do you think just passion? Like, how are you actually deciding what do I want to write about? Good question. So I think I start purely with passion and then let my agent tell me that I can't write that book. Right. Like I think that's sort of like, it's always like trying to slip it by him. Like, Oh, I really want to do this book on, uh, on the 1978, you know, Cleveland Indians or something. And then he's like, yeah, that's not selling. You're not doing that book. So, so he's, he's my, he's my guard. The Houdini book was a weird one, obviously. Uh, I really wanted to do something different. Uh, I've always had uh, this fascination with magic, this fascination with with Houdini. And I just thought, you know, I I want to try something completely out of my zone, right? Like um, uh, not only in in the sense of it's a non-sports book, but in a sense of I don't know anybody in this world. I don't know anybody in this community. Um, I'm basically starting from scratch. It was like going back to, to our earliest days, right? As writers, when we had no sources and no connections. And, and I just wanted to see if I could do it. And, uh, and it, it turned out to be one of my favorite things I've ever done. You know, I got to know all of these people in magic. Many of them are going to be friends for, for life and, and, uh, got to write this wonderfully fun book. It was a, it was a book that I don't know that a lot of people 
got in the sense of like what in the world is a sports writer doing writing about Harry Houdini. So, so the baseball 100 makes a lot more sense, obviously. I mean, I'm a, you know, I've, I've written a lot about baseball and, and this is a connection, but then of course, like you say, it's 900 uh, page baseball books aren't necessarily the, the kind that you see on the New York times bestseller list. So, um, you know, I do try to follow passion. I mean, I feel like, like you say, if you're going to dedicate, you know, two years of your life, uh, or in the case of the baseball 100, uh, a very, very concentrated, ridiculous six months where you just literally don't do anything else. Uh, you gotta love it. I mean, you gotta get to the end, right? I mean, that's the, that's the hardest part of writing a book is, is, uh, after you've done everything is, are you still as excited about it, uh, as you were when you started? And, and, you know, I've been lucky. Every book I've done, I've gotten there. And, and you know, I think that's from trying to follow passion and hoping that sales follow at that point. So I've always wanted my dream book is really a biography of uh, Tupac, the rapper Tupac Shakur. Right. And my agent has said to me in the past, you know, the truth of the matter is you're you're a sports writer and you're known for writing sports books. And this is a lane that you've never been in and blah, 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 blah. So when you were working on Houdini, did you or when you were pitching Houdini? Did you get the same sort of blowback and did you just say, I don't care? Or did you not get that at all? I did get some of that blowback. I mean, and 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 rightfully so. I mean, those guys have to ask those questions, right? That's what they're looking at. I mean, that was not just with my agent, but with the with the publishing house. Everybody was so, you know, they were, I think they fed off of my passion for it. But yeah, I mean, there were all those questions. Like it's, you know. Selling books, as you all know, it's it's such a I mean, it really is an art, not a science. Nobody knows how to do it. Nobody knows what really is going to work, what really is not going to work. And and, uh, you know, part of it is you just have to sort of trust the writer, trust, you know, that 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 things are going to work out. And and, uh, you know, I think what they saw was the extreme passion I had for the book. Uh, they saw the early work on it and 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 really liked it. And, you know, and, and then said, OK, well, we're going to try to figure this out because it, there isn't an easy way. I mean, where, where do you sell it? Where do you sell the Houdini book? You know, it's like you, you can't go to sports talk radio and say, hey, this guy wrote a Houdini book. So I think you do. I think you have to follow your passion for these books. And, and you know, if, if they're going to stop you from writing it at some point, they're going to stop you from writing it. But uh, but I think you have to you have to at least follow your own your own way. This isn't a Harry Houdini podcast, but I am interested, like um, the mediums are so familiar when you are promoting a book in sports. Hey, we, we got you on 40 straight sports talk radio stations. Yes. Hey, Joe, blah, 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 blah. It's yeah. the killer. And, you know, I don't even know. How would you promote a Harry Houdini book? It's a, it's a lot different. I mean, you know, there's no question that with the baseball 100, it's basically like, hey, how could you put Sandy Koufax number seven? You know, I mean, it's like, that's it. It's it's very it's very simple. It's It's completely piecemeal and all this. Uh, with Houdini, it's much different. I mean, it's, you know, it's really following various different paths. There's the magic community, which is pretty small, but but very passionate about it. There's the, you know, sort of American history, uh, you know, community that, that you, that, you know, get involved in. Uh, there's the Jewish community that you get involved in. You know, he's, he's obviously a very important part of American Jewish history. Uh, so there's lots of different sort of nooks and crannies that you you go to. But it is not a direct sell like uh, like a, a sports book is. I am fascinated. You come up with this idea. I'm going to do a book. I want to do a book my ranking of the hundred greatest players of all time. I'm going to break it down. It's going to be really thick and really detailed <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. And 
I want someone to pay me to write this book. I just want to say off the bat, I think the book is freaking amazing. I love Thank it. You. It's it's beautiful. It doesn't seem like an easy book deal to get in these times though. So how do you convince a publisher this is this is this thing we should do? Well, this one was was unusual because this one I wrote the entire book and then and then we took it to the publisher because I actually wrote this in 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 a form for the athletic and uh, and and the the form I wrote it for in the athletic was basically the third time I tried to write this book. I I started writing uh, my first version of the baseball one hundred back in. 2010, 2011, way back when uh, I did it on my blog. And, uh, you know, it was just like this fun little side project that started to eat me up. You know how, you know how that is, you know, you start, I like, I started off by thinking, I just want to rank the hundred players uh, baseball history. I've got this cool statistical formula that I'm using. I'm just going to write a little something about each player but then a little something becomes a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And suddenly you're writing, you know, thousands and thousands of words on each player and it was overwhelming. And I finally had to stop. I just literally didn't have time to do it anymore. And then I tried to pick it up again later. And again, I just couldn't get, I just didn't have the time to do it. And then when I went to the athletic, I, they, I said, I, I want to do this thing and this is going to be my job. I mean, I'm actually going to do this as my job. And, and uh, I did not, know that it was going to be, you know, almost 300,000 words. I did not know it was going to be this massive, massive thing that it turned out to be. Uh, but I knew it was going to be extensive and long. And then and then it's a question of, uh, OK, you know, what do you think? And, and uh, you know, my publisher, uh, who, who I've worked with for my last three books, uh, Avid Reader um, and Simon & Schuster, they, I'm not going to tell you they were like super convinced. I mean, they just were like, well, there's, this is, the book is great. They then that's what they said. The book is great. It's really big. It's a sports book. Like you say, um, you know, and they, and they made an offer and it was like, all right, do you want to, do you want to, uh, you know, follow this path and go all the way through and, and, uh, and we did. And, and the thing that's crazy is that this book is, at least in the early going, uh, just killing it. Just absolutely. I mean, they're blown away. And, and, and as am I, that, uh, that people are, are pre-ordering this book like mad and, and, uh, uh, that's exciting. Obviously I'm thrilled and excited, but and I think what I'm hoping it proves is we don't know anything. What I'm hoping it proves is that all these people that, that, uh, you know, go in like, okay, the way to have a bestseller is to do this and this and this and this, I'm hoping that uh, that you can say, you know, you know, uh, you, you've got to break the mold and, and try different things. And and uh, and hopefully this will work. We'll, we'll we'll obviously see the final results. But but so far, so good. I'm kind of fascinated how your mind works. And I think we're similar in this regard, but I can't tell for sure, which is. Um, example, years, years ago, I bought for like a quarter Donny Osmond's autobiography. Right. And. I could not stop telling my wife things about Donny Osmond. And then I'm looking up everything about Donny Osmond. And then I'm down this deep, deep hole of Osmond's, everything Osmond's. And I'm buying <laughs> Osmond CDs at the time. And I'm just all about the Osmond's. Or I get a Kiss biography randomly. And then I'm all about Kiss for the next month. And I'm telling everyone about Kiss. And right now, researching a Bo Jackson book, all I'm talking about to anyone is Bo Jackson. And it becomes this obsession, obsessive obsession. You seem the same way. Is that the explanation of your journalism career and your writing style is just your mind becomes obsessive? Certainly, it's the explanation of, of my career as an author. I, I mean, I you, what you're saying is so it, it just completely resonates with me. 
I want to be in that zone of obsession. I want that. Like I'm, I'm looking for that always in when I'm reading, but as a writer, well, I remember when I was writing the, my first book, when I wrote uh, soul of baseball uh, about Buck O'Neill, I literally listened to nothing but 1920s and 30s jazz the entire time I wrote that book. Like, I just wanted to be in that world and Kansas City jazz for the most part. I wanted to be in that world of Count Basie and Charlie Parker. And 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 I just felt like I needed it for the writing. So it was a complete obsession as far as just being surrounded by the book at all times. When I wrote the next book, The Machine, I listened to 1975 music the entire time I wrote it, just disco. Literally, it was nothing but nothing but disco. I had I had, you know, hundreds of songs that I would put on playlists and I would listen to nothing but disco. And so it went. I mean, when you know you can't see it now in this room that I'm in right now, but I've got an entire shelf of nothing but Houdini. This room even now behind me, it's a little bit different, but in front of me, I have nothing but Houdini posters. I have Houdini posters everywhere I look. I just need to be surrounded by it. So, so yeah, I think that's very much how my mind works. As far as, you know, the journalism career, it's hard to get there, right? It's hard to get obsessed. I mean, like I loved it when I was in Sports Illustrated and could spend two or three weeks on a story and, and, and you know, then you could really get obsessed by it. But if you got to write something for the next day, it's it's hard to get into that zone. So I think that's what writing books really does for me in a lot of ways. All right. Is there an actual correlation, in your opinion, between, all right, I'm writing about Buck O'Neill. I'm going to listen to Kansas City Jazz from that era. And I'm only going to listen to Kansas City Jazz and the final product of the book. Or could you have been listening to early 80s hip hop and written the same <laughs> book? Like, is that just... Is there actually a correlation between the two? Probably not. Probably not. I just it's I just feel it. I just feel like I want that. I just I I really want to sort of dive in and be a part of whatever it is that I'm doing. And it probably makes absolutely no difference, right? I mean, if I had been listening to uh you know to nothing but Taylor Swift songs when I was writing the machine, I'm sure I would have written exactly the same book. But it doesn't feel that way to me as a, as a writer. I just, I just like, you know, maybe it's a superstition. I just like the idea that I am putting everything that I have into, into a book. And, and I love that because I don't feel like I can do that as much with my other writing. And just, it's, it's, it's too transient. It's too, you're moving around too much. Uh, you're, you're, you know, you've got to go from one thing to the next, to the next one sport to the next, to the next. And, so I love the idea that I can just, and that's what this baseball 100 was. It wasn't so much about how I surrounded my life, but it was, it was my life. I just, I, it was, it was 18 hours every single day of working on one of these pieces, researching one of these pieces, finalizing one of these pieces every single day for that intense period when I wrote the book. Is your family like dad? We don't want to hear anything else about Robin. Yell. seriously, stop. <laughs> Stop. It was with Houdini was the worst because I knew that my daughters and my wife, my wife is a, is a moderate baseball fan. Everybody in the family kind of likes baseball. Nobody wants to hear baseball stuff from me. Nobody. No, no, my parents don't. Nobody does. But with Houdini, it was pretty constant. I'd be like, oh, did you know that Houdini? And they would they would just mock me constantly. And then my daughter, who is now in college, but was a senior or junior or senior in high school when I wrote the book. She, I guess she was a junior and she there was a um, they had to do a, a some kind of project where they had to dress up 
like a uh, historical figure, American historical figure. And they had a list of the, and Houdini was not on the list. And she literally went to them and like protested and said, Harry Houdini is an important American figure. And she ended up, they, they agreed with her and they let her do it. And she got a straight jacket, which is a weird thing for a dad to see their daughter do. Uh, she got a straight jacket, went to school in this straight jacket and, and all that. So, so I was getting through to them somehow, but, uh, but yeah, they, they mocked me mercilessly for doing it. That had to be top five proudest parenting moments. <laughs> no, no question about it. No question about it. Um, when I am fascinated, just I, I pulled up Robin Young as an example, right? But you wrote, um, so you have him as number 66. And you wrote, uh, you probably have not heard of a ball player named Larry Yount. He was a promising pitcher from Woodland Hills, California. He had a presence about him. The Houston Astros took him in the fifth round in 1968, and he was advanced enough that the Astros tried him in AAA in his first professional year. In 19, he dominated in Hampton, Virginia, and the next year he was pretty good in Columbus, Georgia. The Astros had their eye on him. He had grown to be six foot two. He gained 30 or 40 pounds after turning pro. His fastball had become an imposing pitch. Houston thought about keeping him with the big league team after spring training in 1971, but sent him down to A instead, where he struggled a bit. Still, he showed enough stuff to get his first call to the big leagues. On September 15, 1971, with the Astros trailing 4-1 to one in the ninth, Houston manager Harry the Hat Walker signaled for Yount to come in and replace pitcher Skip Ginn. Blah, 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 blah. You are so hardcore into details. And that's not even, that's Robin Yount's brother. Right. <laughs> right. You are like, and I freaking love it. Like, cause I just think everything is about details, 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 but like you just said, all right, today is Robin Yount day, or this is Robin yeah. Yount week or whatever. Yeah. You sit down in front of your laptop. What are you doing? Okay. So first thing I'm doing is I'm doing all kinds of just basic research on, on Robin Yount, right? So I'm looking up all the stuff that, that was written about him in Sports Illustrated. I'm, I'm going to the newspapers.com uh, site and, and looking up key dates in his career, you know, what they wrote about him when he, was in, when he was debuting, what they wrote about him when he won the MVP, what they wrote about him. And what, what undoubtedly happened is, I, you know, I, I was aware that he had a brother who played baseball. I was not aware that he had this unbelievable story. So the Larry Young story finishes with, he comes into his major league debut and he, the thrill is, is there. I mean, he's older than Robin. So it's the first Yount to make the big leagues and he starts warming up and he feels his arm twinge as he's warming up. And he's like, ah, it's fine. I'll, I'll pitch through it. But then it's more pain and more pain and more pain. And he realizes he can't pitch. It's like, he's, he's in pain. And he calls out the manager and he says, I can't go. I, mid, I remember it was shoulder or elbow. I think it was his elbow. And the manager was like, no, this is your major league debut. You got to get out there. And he's like, I can't, I can't pitch. And they pull him off and he never plays in the major leagues. So to me, I see that story, which I did not know. And I say, oh, that's how the Robin Young saga begins, right? I mean, here's, here's, this guy who ends up being this almost perfect ball player, right? A couple times MVP, a hero, one team in the entire career, Milwaukee hero, uh, you know, played the game. You know, he was he was the young one of the youngest players in the history of, of baseball to to be a starter all the way through to the end. I mean, just this wonderful, perfect career. And his brother had the most tragic of careers, right? <laughs> Where he, he was this close. And I just thought, oh, that's 
that's where this begins. And so that's how my mind works on it. And then I'm like, okay, well, let me, what's important about Robin Yount? And I start doing researching and I don't really start writing until I've got enough to go. I, I'm not somebody who sees something then writes it and then sees something else and then writes it. I usually want to have a, a great feel. So I knew Okay, so it's going to start with Larry Yount. That's where I'm going to go. And then I'm going to build off of that. And I'm going to start telling the story of Robin Yount. And, and then I start writing. I go, I go, I go. And then and I'll usually run into, into places where I want more research. So I'll usually dive into something else. Then more specific, I'll get to the end. I'll put it away for a day. And then I'll go back and rewrite it the next day. And then it's done. Then it's ready to go. Do you enjoy digging through archives more than you enjoy calling a guy on the phone? Like, is the archive dig the joy for you? It is a joy for me. I don't know if I enjoy it more than calling to somebody on the phone. I mean, I love connecting with somebody and, and getting their story, right? I mean, like, I love doing that. But I can get just as much joy, for sure, out of out of digging through the archives, finding some great story, some great rabbit hole to go down, some some super interesting thing I didn't know. And then you can start... You know, you know how it goes, right? You you love this too. Like you lead, you find one great story and it leads to another great story. It leads to another great story, and uh, so I I do. I'm tirelessly in love with that. I mean, I could spend days and weeks, you know, on something. I used to have a problem because because the machine, the, the book about the seventy five Reds was basically, I mean, I interviewed everybody, but it was basically driven by by newspaper research, but there was no newspapers.com then. So it was all microfilm and I have a very queasy stomach. So I'd be, you know, watching the microfilm and I'd like, I'd have to, you know, quit every 20 minutes or 30 minutes just to go to the bathroom and 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 dry heave. And then I would go back and, and do some more. So I like it a lot better this way, you know? Wait, would the microfilm machine actually make you dry heave? We would. It would. I mean, it, I usually stop before it got to that point, but I would start to feel I have terrible motion sickness, terrible. And at first I was working microfilm. I didn't connect in my mind. Like, why am I getting sick? I mean, I'm like really feeling sick. And it was just the spinning. I would I would try all these things where I would close my eyes and do this. But it eventually, uh, you know, it uh, it gets to me. I, it happens in movies, too. Like I, I, I there are movies. If the camera's too shaky, I'm dead. It's it, it doesn't work for me. Whenever I meet any journalist who doesn't have a subscription to newspapers.com, I'm like, what are you, what are you even doing? You know, it's the greatest, I would say it's the greatest research advancement in my life as a journalist. Oh, no question. No question. And, you know, we used to try other ones, right? There was that, there's the uh, newspaper search and then there's the, Texas. you know, the, the, yeah, various other ones. But this thing is a, it's a, I was, I used it earlier today. I'm working on the, on something and I, I spent an hour on it earlier today, just chasing down. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Don't tell them, but I mean, I pay 10 times what I pay for it. I mean, there's, I literally cannot live without it. The best deal. And it's the best deal of all time. I've gotten as gifts for people. Subscription. <laughs> it's not good. Yeah. Okay. So you're Joe and you're writing about Ozzie Newsom, just as an example, who I know was your favorite player growing up. And all you want to know is about Ozzie Newsom. And you just want to know everything about Ozzie Newsom. You want to know, every, you want to know what kind of stick on me put on his hand. You want to know what brand his wristbands were. I'm actually being serious. Where, where in your life does that come from? Like, wh why, why do you give a shit? Well, that's a good question. Why? 
I mean, I think, you know, look, I think we I come from a family of storytellers. Right. And and uh, I mean, my they weren't I'm the first one to do it professionally, I guess. But my parents would always it was always for us a, a dinner table of, you know, trying to top each other with different stories of things that happened during the day. And and it was always, you know, my my parents were my, my dad in particular was always like, you know, really detailed about the way he would tell the story of something that happened at the factory that was that was goofy or funny or, you know, I, I maybe there's a part of it that comes from there. I, I don't know. I, I guess I guess I've always had sort of an endless curiosity for things. And it's it's weird because I did not in school like if you, I, I say always, but it was not true in school. I was not. I was not a good student. I was not somebody who found any of that to be fascinating, which is weird uh, and 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 something I kind of regret because I kind of feel like now I there's so much I want to know that I did not learn in school like I should have. Um, but I, you know, ever since certainly since I started in this business, um, I've wanted to know everything, and you know, I I, I think maybe I've even told you this story. I, you know, there was. There was this time that I was uh, working for the Charlotte Observer. I was covering the uh, the uh, minor league baseball team, and I ended up sitting next to Billy Williams. And uh, it's a story I tell all the time to my daughters, and because I think it's so important. Uh, I was sitting next to Billy Williams, and and Billy Williams was this great Hall of Fame player, sweet swing, and Billy, and and uh, played for the Cubs for years. And he was the Cubs roving assistant uh, hitting coach at that point, roving hitting coach. So I was sitting next to him and and I was just, we were talking a little bit, but I don't even know exactly what pushed me to do this, but I, I had been dying to know something. And I, I turned to him and I said, Mr. Williams, can I ask you a question? And he said, yes. And I said, what is the difference between a fast a curveball and a slider? So I said, what's the difference between a curveball and a slider? And as I asked the question, I was probably 19 years old, 20 years old. And as I asked the question, there were some Snickers in the press box, as you might imagine, uh, people who had overheard. Uh, and Billy Williams took my notepad. I had a, you know, the, the old skinny reporter's notepad. He took my notepad and took my pen and he started to draw the difference between a slider and a curveball. And for the next 10 or 15 minutes, he just gave me this master class on the difference, how the curveball breaks this way and the slider breaks this way, but but there are different kinds of sliders. This is Gibson's slider, and he would draw that, and this is Steve Carlton's slider, and he would draw that, and and this is Tom Seaver's, and you know, he would just go through all of these different uh players, and it was it was awe-inspiring, awe-inspiring to be getting this lesson about something so basic from you know one of the best who ever played the game. And at the end of it, he said, and by the way, don't let these guys get you. The ones that were laughing, they don't know the difference either. In so many ways, I tell my daughter that my daughter has, you know, against my my better wishes, uh, has uh, gone into journalism herself and, and is studying journalism in college. And but I told her, like, that's the most important thing is like not only curiosity, but having the guts to follow your curiosity, even if it makes you look stupid, even if it makes you feel uh, like you don't know anything, like that's what we do, right? I mean, that's 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 what we do as, as journalists. We're we're there to we're not there to be smarter than anybody else. We're there to to ask the questions that that other people would ask. So I, I guess I've always had that, you know, ever since I started in this business. Are you unafraid 
to ask questions that might make you look quote unquote stupid. I am now. I am now. I, I, I don't know if I would have been after, you know, before that Billy Williams thing. And and I'm sure there were plenty of times after that that I was kind of nervous about that kind of thing. But now I, I'll ask anything. And, and I'll usually even say I, it doesn't always work, by the way. I remember uh, I was, uh, you know, I've written quite a bit about NASCAR and nobody knows, knows less about cars or, or racing than I do. But I love the characters. I love the 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 people. So, I mean, some of my favorite stories have been about Jimmy Johnson and Dale Earnhardt and, and Jeff Gordon and some of these guys. And I was doing an interview. I'm not going to even say with who, with a NASCAR guy. And I started with him much in the same way that I started with all those guys, which is, hey, listen, I don't know very much about this. I'm, I'm really interested, but I really don't know anything. And he actually looked at me and he said, I'm not here to teach you about racing. Like, like, so that was the only one that I can remember ever. And I was taken aback, but then I was like, eh, you know what? I mean, it's, 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 I get it. I, that, that's fine. If that's how he feels, you know, he's just not going to have as good a story written about him. I mean, what, what can you do? Um, but yeah, now not only unafraid, I think I embrace that. I want the person to understand that I'm coming to them knowing less than them. And that's why I'm coming to them. Wait, don't you also think another thing about getting older in this business is like, if I were 23 and someone said that to me, I'd be horrified. Oh, Sitting yeah. here now approaching 50, I kind of get it. Like I yeah. get what the guy's saying. <laughs> I understand. You don't want to be my tutor. Like, that, that's, that is a fair, that is not an unreasonable thing for him to say. Not. And I don't hold it against him. Um, yeah. But the, the story I wrote about him was not as good as it could have been, you know, right. and, and, and that's okay. I mean, that's, you know, I think everybody's got choices. I would say, and I'm sure you felt this way in, in your career, 99.99% of people, if you go to them and say, hey, listen, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me? They're going to help you. Right. They're going to help you. They're going to offer thoughts. They're going to give you advice. They're going to they're going to uh, tell you things that, that uh, can help you get through it. I have certainly found, I mean, that's the only example I can ever think of in my life. And I've asked a lot of stupid questions. That's the only example I can ever think of in my life where somebody didn't want to do that. Actually, interestingly, so I advise a student newspaper out here in California. And um, often I think students, they're always so focused on how do I appear professional? How, how do I be professional? And I would say one of your strengths is that you are a college student and you can actually yeah. say to them, look, I'm just in college or I'm new at this. I feel like that's an amazing device to use, actually. Absolutely. No, I mean, look, I think that's, you know, I always felt really comfortable even regardless of that one story, I've always felt really comfortable in the auto racing world because I don't know what I'm doing. Everybody else out here can talk to you about, you know, what, whatever it is. I mean, like I literally was like, I can remember asking Jimmy Johnson, like, Jimmy, I know this is, this is, you know, and this is a guy's won what seven uh, championships. And I said to him like, what, what does it mean when you guys say a car is loose? Like what, what the heck does that mean? And, and, you know, he could have said, like, it's like the single most basic thing in the history of the world. But he didn't. He explained to me what it was that when a car is loose, when a car is tight. I don't remember what those things were, by the way. But I, I, I wrote it for the time. But, yeah, if you're a college student and, and I do tell my daughter that, you know, she works for the school paper uh, at Kansas. And I that's what I told her. I said, you just use it. I mean, do not ever pretend you know more than you know, because one, you're going to have to try to cover that up later when you're actually writing the story. And two, 
why nobody expects you to know nobody expects you to to have this kind of knowledge this is this is you are talking to people who are experts in their field who have who have accomplished something in their lives and let them tell you what it is and i i just think that couldn't be you that to me is as important as any advice out there you like comparing athletes to athletes and i'm going to make a weird comparison here i'm going to say joe posnanski is ricky henderson okay okay right and i love ricky henderson sure I always thought of you, first and foremost, Kansas City star. That's when I first knew of you as a writer, and you were there. I think that's probably the longest stretch of your career was writing. For, am I wrong yeah. about that? Kansas City sure. star. And then you've basically worked everywhere. Like, you worked <laughs> everywhere. You've worked for SI. You worked for MLB.com. You worked for The Athletic. USA Today, Sports on Earth. I'm actually really fascinated by Sports on Earth because I remember when that started, and there were some SI guys, Larry Burke, who went there and 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 – it seemed like a great idea, this sort of website. And you had a lot of big names were there and it was going to be great. And it was great. And then it didn't last very long. And it kind of reminds me a little of the national in that regard. Why didn't it work? I think you, you said it exactly right. So so that was this, this uh, joint plan between Gannett, USA Today people and MLB.com to create what ended up like sort of a sort of a Sports Illustrated type online magazine is what the I think the idea was. And it was going to be very limited number of stories, but high quality stories. And you're right. We, it was an incredible staff of, of writers, incredible people across the board. And I think creatively it was a success. I mean, I think the stories that that, you know, were written by you know Tommy Tomlinson and Chuck Culpepper. And, and I mean, I, I'm going to forget people. So everybody who was there were wonderful, just really, really wonderful stuff. They didn't really ever understand what, how they were going to make any money on it. They just never, ever had a plan. And it was funny. I went there. I was the first one they hired, which was very nice of them. And, uh, and they sort of wanted, they're like, Hey, we want to build this around you, which I didn't feel super comfortable with, but because they wanted to do that, they were sort of like, all right, well, here's our plan. And I was like, okay, I, I get all of this creative work you're going to do. I'm not a business person. I don't understand that. But how are you going to make money on this thing? Because it was already clear you weren't going to make money through advertising. There wasn't going to be enough traffic for that to happen. You were going to have to figure out other ways to make money. And it was a whole lot of, you know what? We're business people. We've always made money. We'll figure it out kind of uh, thing. And uh, and and they never did. They never did. And and look, and they're not alone. Obviously, everybody is, including our our dear Sports Illustrated, has has really struggled over the years. And and it's a difficult time to figure out how to make money. But I think that was it. It was it was purely a I don't even know what the plan is to make money. Did you have a moment when you were right there and you were like, this doesn't this doesn't bode well for my future or for the future of this website. Yeah. Well, several months in, I mean, it, it really was, it was a, you know, I, I was approached by NBC uh, to, to go there and I, I didn't want to leave. Uh, I didn't want to leave sports illustrated. I, I went to sports, left sports illustrated because those, uh, you know, it was a, a dear friend was was running sports on earth. And he said, you, I need you, I need you to come and do this and make this work for me. So I, I left Sports Illustrated and it was, that, that was as 
that was the one time I've cried, you know, leaving a place because I loved it so much. And then I went there and I was there for a few months and it's like, this is going to fail. I mean, financially, it's such a good product. It's such good writing, such good content, but it was vividly clear it was not going to make money. It was just vividly clear. And it's like, this is going to just end up being, uh, I mean, this, they're, they're literally just going to close the doors one day. That's, I mean, that was, that was very clear to me. And NBC came to me and it made me a, an incredible offer. And, and I went to those guys and I said, can you show me any way that this can work? Like any, give me some level of hope. And they, you know, they, they were very kind and they made me a, a, a really big offer to stay, but they never could show me how it was going to work financially. And, and, uh, and I just had to go. I mean, that was that was hard. I mean, that's each of the steps away. I've loved every place that I've been. I mean, it's I've I've moved around so much, and it, it feels like wow, you're just jumping from place to place. But I've loved every place that I've been. It's just each spot has been sort of a business decision, which is not the kind of decisions I like making. Where it's like, hey, this isn't going to work, and you know, this has been great, but this is the time has run out on this working. You know, for them, not not for me, for them, and so. Um, so that's been hard. That really has been hard. I ran track at the University of Delaware and then Delaware got rid of the running program. Right. Yeah. And sometimes it, it, it is almost like that empty mall feeling where you're like, did, did it even exist if it doesn't exist anymore? Like there's right. something really sad about having done something and then it's not there. And to me, there's something really sad that sports on earth was this great collection of talent. Great. Agreed. It does not even exist on the internet anymore. It's just gone. You can't even find it. I mean, like people will ask me about stories that I wrote for sports on earth. And I have to like, sometimes I can dig through my old emails and, and find them. That's basically the only way to find those. It's really, yeah. I mean, it is sad. I mean, it was such a fun time too, though. I mean, I, that I wasn't there for as long as I would have liked, but it was such a fun time. And you just felt like, wow, why can't somebody figure out how to make money on this? Because it's so good. But, you know, I, that's that's the eternal question, how, how people are going to make money on journalism, right? That's the, uh, the we're, it's going on to this day. Before we continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my son, Emmett. And you seem really sad about Casey leaving for college this week. Dad? Yeah, I mean, she's your big sister. Bruh, I've been waiting to climb this ladder for far too long. I'm finally first string on the Royal Retro's ad totem pole. At long last, I can be the one telling people to visit royalretros.com for all their throwback needs. It's the e-dog's time to shine, play a pimp. I'm not sure how to tell you this, play a pimp. We just signed an exclusive five-year, 25 million deal with the family coach to be the new voice of Royal Retros. Yeah, sucker. But I just got my SAG card. Nine years ago, you wrote a book and I was horribly unfair to you. You wrote, a, you wrote a Joe Paterno biography, and I feel like myself and many other writers owe you an apology in hindsight. I sincerely, I mean that time a million. And the book was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I feel like the whole experience had to be miserable for you. Not the whole experience, but everything that came from that just had to be miserable. And I feel like a lot of us sat in judgment of you unfairly and I blogged about it repeatedly and I was like, and I honestly think I was doing it from a place of probably jealousy and stupidity and ignorance. I never picked up the phone to call you. I just did you wrong Th times a thousand. And it, it, it's one of my great shames actually as a, uh, I really mean that it's one of my great shames. As a journalist. 
And I am interested, like, what was that experience like for you taking the bullets after you bust your ass on a book? Well, th- first of all, thank you for saying that. And you, you've said that to me privately and, and it, it means a lot. There have, there have been a handful of writers who have reached out to me in the years since I wrote that book to, to tell me that they, they reread the book and they, you know, realized, oh, you know what, that was a really good book. And, and I'm sorry I said that. And, and, you know, Hey, uh, but, I, but it was such an emotional time. And I, and I've always, I've never sat really in judgment of, of people who were upset. It was really emotional. And there were people who were very, very, very angry about it as they should be about the Sandusky thing. And, and it was never clear how much Paterno did do or didn't do. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, people made assumptions and still do. I still, I still take plenty of hits about that. Um, it was hard. I mean, I'm just point blank. It was hard. It was not so much hard to deal with, 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 you know, some of the criticism that was not great, but it was hard because it was, it was such a stark, challenge right and i can literally remember looking in the mirror and the actual mirror like it was some movie scene or something and saying to myself you've got to be true to yourself and write this book the way you want to write this book you are going to people are going to hate you for it no matter what you write and you have got to be true to yourself and true to the story you're the only one who's here you're the only one who's in the middle of all this you're the only one who has access to all of these people You've got to tell the truest story you know how to tell. And I would pump myself up that way. I mean, it was that kind of book. Uh, and I'll, I'll never have a challenge. For, I hope I'll never have a challenge like that again. So that was hard. And then, you know, look, when the criticism came, I got it. I mean, look, everybody was looking in at this. And I mean, it's, it's, it's the grossest story imaginable, right? Of the story of child predator and, and, and football program is, you know, involved, but not directly, but not indirectly. And you're, you're back and forth. And here's this legendary coach who, who preached always doing the right thing. And did he do the right thing? He didn't do the right thing. He definitely didn't do the right thing. And you're just going round and round and round trying to get at what is true here. What isn't true here? What is real here? What isn't real here? So yeah, an incredible challenge. And, you know, it does make me feel really good. Uh, now when, you know, you come up to me or, or, or other writers come up to me and say, Hey, you know, it was a, it was an emotional time. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. I've read, I've read your book. It's, it's, I, I think it's a really good book. I really still believe to this day. It's, it's the best work I've ever done in the form that it was. I, I think it was a challenge that, that probably very, 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 very few writers can associate with. Um, and I'm proud of what I did. I'm really proud of that book. One thing I think about your writing and your approach to sports that I definitely don't have, and I wish I had more of, is you you have an optimist's air to sports. You really do. You view sports in a very optimistic light. Like you are sure. And it's it's really a beautiful thing. It really is. And I'm sure I'm guessing you're working on this book. It's a legend, it's awesome, it's paterno, he's a great subject for a book. And then someone basically takes a baseball bat and says, oh, we're changing everything about this narrative. Good luck with that. Yeah. I just can't even imagine the freaking nightmare of even writing that damn thing. It was not great. I mean, you know, it is. I mean, look, if, if I had gone in saying, OK, hey, Joe Paterno is in the middle of a scandal and I feel like I can get some good access, I'm going to write this book. OK, that wouldn't be me. I wouldn't have written that book. I mean, I would. There was no interest in writing that book. Right. Um, 
it was about writing about this legend who was who look, he was a very flawed man long before any of this stuff happened. But it was to tell the story of this person who had been at the same place for 50 years and 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 had had brought out, you know, just uh, so many, not only great teams, but great people and, 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 you know, taught life lessons in addition to, to, to coaching and, but also wouldn't quit. And just, you know, there was, it was, it was a perfectly wonderful story to tell uh, on, on every level, on the good levels, on the bad levels and everything. And then suddenly now it's, it becomes something not only entirely different, but, but, you know, very confusing. There's, there's no history you know, it's happening live, live in real time. It's not like you can look back in 10 years. Like if I wrote that book now, it'd be a lot different. Right. So it's, 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 you're, you're doing it live and then he dies. I mean, I'm, that's, that's not funny, but it's, it's true. It's like this unbelievable series of, of he's, he's involved in this, in this horrible, horrible, horrible child predator uh, situation with Jerry Sandusky. Uh, he hates Sandusky, but but did he do anything to stop Sandusky and this? And then it's like, oh, he has terminal cancer, like literally right in the middle of all of this. And then he dies two months later and you're just just what in the world? There's he's not even there to tell you anything anymore. You know, it's 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 really it was really tough. Um, but when I finished that book, first of all, I was incredibly proud of that book and I knew it was going to get killed. I knew it. I mean, of course, I knew it was going to sell. I knew it was going to get killed. I knew I was going to get lacerated by lots of people, but I had accepted that. I was like, look, that's okay. It's the truth. It's it's the truth as I see it. I'm going to write it that way. And I don't care. And I didn't, I really didn't. That part didn't bother me uh, at all. Um, But, but it was like, that is that moment in your career where you have to say, can I stand up under the like most dire of circumstances? And I, when I finished that book, I, I was, I really could honestly say to myself, you stood up, you stood up in the most dire of circumstances and you delivered, uh, I think a really good book, but definitely an honest book and a true book. And, and people who would say, Oh, you just, all you did was, was you defended Paterno and this and like, well, you didn't read the book. You just didn't read the book. The book is, the book is everything about that story. And, and it's, and it's about his life. It's not just about that story. And I think if you read that book, you get as close to the truth as maybe we'll ever get. And, and I'm very proud of that. Did that experience do any sort of, did that permanently alter anything about your approach to journalism or writing or anything, or is it just an experience you went through and then kind of moved on? It probably did, but I don't feel like I'm any more jaded than, than, than I was. I mean, I, I feel like I'm still just as optimistic as I ever was and feel like I'm, I'm still kind of feel more bulletproof in, in some ways after that, I think, I mean, like, I kind of feel like, Oh, well, what, 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 you know, I'm going to write a book about Harry Houdini. I don't literally know anybody. So what? I mean, is it going to be as hard as Paterno? It's not. So, um, so yeah, no, I, I think it's made me more, um, a little bit more feel. I, I think it's given me a sense of confidence about some things. What I hope it hasn't done is changed me. And I mean, I worked really hard at that. That's why I wanted my next book to be a really fun book. I wrote a golf book. I wanted it to be super fun and super light. And, and, uh, and then I wanted to write Houdini. I wanted to follow different paths after I wrote that. So I hope it hasn't changed me. I hope it hasn't made me uh, a little darker. I, I think that would, uh, that would, that wouldn't be me. So I hope that hasn't happened. 
Let me ask you a final question. You've written eight gazillion articles. You've written a ton of books, blah, 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 blah. My favorite thing you've ever written is about uh, the Snuggie, the blog post about the Snuggie, <laughs> which is just the freaking greatest thing ever. And this goes back, I don't know what year this was, probably a decade ago-ish. Oh, at least, yeah. yeah when when the Snuggie, the, the, the blanket with sleeves <laughs> was the odd phenomenon. And we actually owned a Snuggie. Did you actually own a Snuggie? Oh, sure. Of course. How could we not? And um, you wrote, I know you've seen this thing over and over already, but just in case, here's the idea. The Snuggie is a blanket with sleeves. I'm not saying that as some vague description. That's their slogan. Snuggie, the blanket with sleeves. Now, at first glance, you may think, hmm, a blanket with sleeves sounds like, I don't know, a sweatshirt or a sweater or a fleece pullover. But the magic of the Snuggie is not in the innovation. It is the way they sell it. And then you break down the advertisement for the Snuggie, which is the greatest thing ever. (laughs) Um, I think there's really something to be said for this idea that you see the minutia and you just expand it. And there's real joy in them, as opposed to Mike Trout is hitting 320. Let's write about that. The yeah. teeny tiny teeny. Here's this ridiculous commercial. I'm going to break it down bit by bit by bit by bit. Am I overstating that, or is that sort of your thinking here? No, dead, dead on, dead on. Uh, you know, it's not the only. It's it's funny because I was actually, you know, I have no idea. This is the kind of stupid conversations I have with people. I was actually arguing with a friend of mine. Who, who was talking about the, oh, you know, the best the the best infomercial thing you ever wrote was uh, the Snuggie. And I said, no, it was the FarmersOnly.com that I wrote about. So so it's like I love goofiness and I love just diving into not, to me. Nothing is funnier than taking something stupid, but then going so deep into that something stupid that you that you sort of break down how it happens. And I do that with sports. And, and I'll just give you an example. I, you know, I, I do now a weekly Browns diary. I've been doing that for a few years where, you know, I, I kind of started writing it as this effort to start caring about the Browns and the NFL again after years of not caring about them so much. So I've been breaking down uh, their games every week for a few years now. And the Browns just lost. I mean, just beat Houston last week. And there was a play in the game where the Houston coach there was it was third down and and 15 or something and and they picked up 13 yards so it was fourth down but the the browns had jumped off side so you would expect them to accept the penalty and try again on third down but he didn't he declined the penalty so he would face fourth down and then I thought, well, he's doing that so he can go for it. Why else would you do, you know, you go for it on fourth and two, but he didn't. He sent the punt team on. So he literally chose punting over taking another chance to get a a first down. And to me, I want to know everything about it. I want to know literally every, I want to know what his mindset was. I want to know what the other players were thinking. I want to know every single thing. So, so that definitely is where my mind goes. Well, Joe, listen, I appreciate your time a whole lot. The book is freaking awesome. It's, it's this is the best compliment I can give you. I really mean it. It's the best bathroom book ever, <laughs> ever. Because you just open it and you turn to a player you want to read about and you sit there as absorb the whole Ricky Henderson argument. I just want to say how and how anyone voted against Ricky Henderson to get in the Hall of Fame. Unbelievable. Sense. He has everything you would need. Everything. Yeah, everything. So and times two. Everything times two. I mean, it's just. It's mind boggling. Yeah. But Joe, thank you so much. The book is awesome. And uh, yeah, congrats on it. And thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Jeff, thank you. I want to thank today's guest, Joe Posnanski, for joining me at Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Posnanski. Subscribe to his Substack at joeposnanski.substack.com. 
and buy the baseball and hundred wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy two riders singing yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Out. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.